reminded that uh, Aristotle defined education as the nurture of the soul, that it's much deeper uh, than transmitting information from one person to another. And I'm thankful uh, that God has given us so many devoted, faithful men and women committed to the nurture of the soul and raising up children. Um, So thank you for what you do. I know it's not an easy thing. Uh, And and we pray that the Lord would use you mightily this year uh, as we seek to really build a generation here that will honor the Lord, will seek Him. Um, If you've been with us this summer, uh, you know, we've been walking through the life of David, uh, the great king, a guy who was amazing in so many ways and broken and fallen like us in so many ways as well. And we come to the end of that this morning. David had had a lengthy reign and lived into old age. And where we find him today, he's laying on his deathbed. And he gathers his family to kind of mutter his last will and testament to them. And it made me think about the importance of last words. Uh, That those last words seem to have greater weight than others. Throughout history, there have been just amazing statements by great men. Sometimes these statements really live up to the greatness of their life, the expectation that their lives is set. Because we think that a, that a great man, his final words should, should come arise to the measure of the greatness of their life. And so I got a few examples for you that just I found interesting for different reasons. As a lifelong and native Texan, uh, the words of William Barrett Travis as he wrote letters out of the Alamo sent by Curry have always been significant to me. I want to share a few of his last letters with you this morning. On February 24th, 1836, this letter was addressed to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. He said, fellow citizens and compatriots, I'm besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana and have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion and otherwise the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. And I have answered this demand with a cannon shot and our flag still waves proudly from these walls. I shall never surrender nor retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his honor or that of his country. Victory or death, William Barrett Travis. About a week later, on March the 3rd, he wrote a short note to a man named David Ayers, who was a close family friend. This is what he said to him, Take care of my little boy. If the country should be saved, I may make for him a splendid fortune. But if the country be lost, and I should perish. He will have nothing but the proud recollection that he is the son of a man who died for his country. That's the last known letter from Colonel Travis before he died on the morning of March 6th, 1836. Another interesting character is a man named Erskine Childers, who was an Irish nationalist and freedom fighter. He was apprehended and was faced before the firing squad with a group of his men. And this was his last words to his friends as they faced the firing squad. Take a step or two forward, lads. It will be easier for them that way. I sort of like that. He's thinking of how difficult the shot might be. Um, my favorite is a man named Pancho Villa. Now, he's, he's famous from the song that Willie sang, but there was a real character. He was a abandoned and revolutionary. Pancho Villa's final words were, No me dijen morir así, digan que dije algo. All right? 
For you non-Spanish speakers, he said, don't let me die like this. Tell them I said something. I've always thought that was good. It sort of is a letdown when you think of the notoriety of his life. When we look at the life and final words of King David, I want you to know that there's no letdown. That these last words that he says to his son, they resonate in a significant way when we think about the legacy that David intended to leave. David wasn't a perfect man. He had great successes and great failures, but through it all, He's known in the scriptures as a man with a heart after God. And I think as we see the last words of David's legacy, it will be helpful for us as we think about ours. And if you don't think about your legacy, I want you to know that you should, even if you're young. And the reason is, your legacy doesn't begin with your final words. It's the accumulation of your life. And you want to build something. The mission of the church is ultimately to make disciples. We say it here that Tomball Bible Church exists to make mature disciples to reach the nations. Discipleship is about investing in faith into another person, believing that God will do something great in and through them. So it's not a programmatic thing that that the call of the church is ultimately to lead Sunday school classes, although that's helpful and useful. That deeper than that, under it all, is the mission that we would pour our lives out into other people and establish a lasting legacy. That through us and what God has done in us, that would be poured out into another. And that through the generations, the faith would be strengthened and spread to all the nations. That's what we're here for. So we don't just think about this life and this generation. We constantly need to think about the next. And I want us to look as a bit of a blueprint, the final words of King David in 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. And as you turn there, we have Bibles at the end of the row. If you don't have one with you, please use that. Uh, We'll put them up on the screen. But if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take that one with you. So as we turn to our Bibles, we find David nearing the end of his life. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me. Saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all of their heart and with all of their soul, that you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, what David lays out to his son is important, and I, I want to talk specifically uh, about raising sons here, and then move to generally about a discussion of legacy. But we can't skip over something that's obvious here in the text. David, in his word to Solomon, goes a long way into defining appropriate and biblical masculinity. And to skip over that would be to skip over an obvious issue that our culture needs clarity on. So I want to briefly address a few things that David communicates about manhood here. And see, we live in a world that's got a lot of confusion about what constitutes true masculine strength. Worldly definitions might include romantic exploits or or wealth and income acquired or simply athletic prowess. Some would seek to define themselves as men through military might or, or strength. Others simply by the exertion of physical strength on another, often through violence. And then we get the basic meathead definition of who can spit the farthest 
yell the loudest. And we define that as manhood. In fact, in communities not far from where I grew up, every year they will have watermelon seed spitting competitions. And that's a measure of your masculinity. In addition to which lawnmower you drive and what color your truck is. Now, there's the opposite of this chauvinistic kind of macho definition of manhood. And we see that expressed in ultimately what I think is a rejection of masculinity altogether. Uh, in, in effeminate behavior accepted and welcome for men, sort of androgynous perspective on things. And, and it's really significant to the point that to say, uh, you know, men do this and, and women do this is, is often by some in our culture to consi- be considered hateful or, or closed-minded and bigoted. And what we've confused is the equality of man and woman as image bearers of God with uniformity of men and women. See, God has created men and women to be different and distinct, yet both sharing in his image and being worthy of equal dignity and honor before God, but fundamentally different. That's ultimately the root, I think, of the confusion around what marriage is because we don't understand the distinctions of man and woman and we've pretended that there are no distinctions so you just choose the coupling of your desire and we get really off base. So we have this rejection of masculinity that's ultimately built around rejecting these caricatures that we just described from the world. And what the scriptures do here is give us a path that's fundamentally different entirely. It's not an overbearing chauvinistic version of masculinity, and it's not a rejection of strength at all. It's a different thing. And so I want you to understand something very important in David's words is that masculine strength, according to scripture, is a good thing and something for men to aspire to. It's not a bad thing. It's not something to be hidden, rejected, or apologized for. It is a good and God-honoring thing. And I want you to see David's first words to his sons. Be strong Show yourself a man. So exerting strength, using strength in the right way at the right time is a God-honoring thing that David desires for his son. And he tells him, show yourself a man. Which in the vernacular of where I grew up, you might say, cowboy up. It's time to step up. It's time to act like men. So he doesn't tell him, uh, don't be strong, don't exert yourself, don't be masculine. He says, I want you to do that. But then he's going to define it in a biblical term. He's going to say, be strong, show yourself a man. And then he's going to say, walk in obedience to your God. That the ultimate expression of masculine strength is joyful submission to our Creator. The masculinity is not defined in worldly terms and it is not a negative thing to be rejected. It's rather something to be embraced and masculine strength finds its greatest expression when we walk in submission to our king because the way we are created as humans, as men, is to be in submission to God. And when we walk in obedience and submission to His commands, living under the direction of the Spirit, under the self-control that God gives us, our strength is exerted in a way that is life-giving and honors the Lord. So we begin with that. The true masculinity is bound up in walking in submission to God and obedience to His commands. And that in and of itself is an expression of masculine strength. Now I want to move beyond that to begin to think about a broader conversation of legacy that David establishes for us. 
when he leaves this legacy to his son, it's not willy-nilly. He has a few things he wants to communicate. And the first is this, as he reminds him of God's commands and promises, is to live a life of faithfulness to God. David desires to leave a legacy of faithfulness before God. You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 3. He tells him to keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes and commandments, His rules and His testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. So I want you to, to begin with that. He says, I want you to walk in obedience to God. And he goes back to the language of Deuteronomy, walking in his ways and his statutes and commandments. And so he wants his son to honor God in the way that he lives. And in his decision making, to honor him in his life, and to go simply beyond obedience. But a testimony of the Lord's goodness. You see, not only does he tell him to walk keeping charge of the Lord's commands, he also tells him to keep charge of his testimonies. And those are different things. Commands consist of instructions and laws that guide the way he is to live. Testimonies speak of the story of God and how he established and blessed Israel. And what David is telling Solomon, that his function as king and the expression of masculine strength that he is to use throughout his life is to be twofold. One, to be obedient to God's commands. And two, to proclaim and remind the people of God's faithful deeds. And so he reminds Solomon to be faithful and to remind the people of God's goodness. It's like the author Samuel Johnson said, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. So David doesn't come with any new teachings for him. He reminds him of what he's already known and says, by the way, it's your job as the king to remind the people. I find it interesting here that David would look back to the testimonies of God in the past as a key element for Solomon to walk faithfully with God in the future. It almost seems at times like remembering seems like the opposite of what we want to do. That, that faith is a forward-looking reality where we walk with God today and tomorrow and we look forward to what God will do. And yet the scriptures have this continual tendency to say, look backwards. Remember the testimony of God. Remember what he did for you. This is the foundation of how our relationships work. I've maybe told you this story before, but as a kid, we went camping out in West Texas a lot, and we would go into the Davis Mountains. Now, just before you get into the mountains in the flatland is a place called Balmeray, where there is this massive collections of cold springs that come up, and they've channeled them all into this massive swimming pool that's about two and a half acres in size. And at its deepest, is about 35 feet deep. This is an amazing place to go swimming, uh, one, because you're, you're so far from anything remotely like it out there and two because the water is fresh and cold and deep and there's fish there and and i can remember as a kid we'd go swimming there and i learned to jump off the high dive there at balmeray now as a kid that high dive seemed to be 150 feet up in the air Uh, we've been there with our kids it's not so tall anymore and i remember being about six years old i would climb up to the top of it and go out to the tip and i was afraid And I was too afraid to jump off. And so I had to do the walk of shame. You know, you go back and you go back down the ladder and there's the kids are all on the ladder. So it's really inconvenient for everyone. And and, and after doing that, getting back down to the bottom, I went and sat on the side just angry that I had clammed up like that. And so my dad noticed that he he, he knows my uh, proclivity towards getting frustrated and and having a bad attitude. And he wants to salvage the vacation. So uh, he comes next to me and says, you know, son, if... 
if I were down there, just kind of off to the side, treading water, when you get up, would you jump? And I'm, you know, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. And, and so we go again, and this time, round two, dad's out there, and I jump in. Now, now the only thing that's changed, right, is the water is still really deep. I'm still six. It still feels like 100 feet uh, from the surface of the water. But, but dad is there, and he has said, if you have trouble, I'll get you. You see, and in my extensive six-year history with the man at that moment, he had demonstrated himself trustworthy, right? When dad says, I've got you, I've got you. And he says, I'll catch you, I'll catch you. He says, I'll get this for you, he'll get that for you. And so I know I can trust him. But my trust, and at that moment, my ability to jump off the high dive is predicated not on on some ability to look into the future and see what's going to happen, because I don't have that, but the ability to look to the past and know what has happened, and based upon that, being willing to step out in faith. The scriptures are going to communicate that abundantly clear for us in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want to encourage you to turn there to verse 11. You'll see this insistence on the people of God remembering what God had done in the past. In verse 11, he says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I have commanded you today. I want you to notice the language that we just heard in 1 Kings. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. They might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore with your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. I want you to see what's going on here. He's going to remind them of something. He's going to remind them that that this nation of Israel, that David reigns over with power and prosperity, that years and years and years before was a nation of slaves. And they were in bondage in Egypt with no ability to deliver themselves or rescue themselves. And God, with a mighty hand, brought plagues upon Egypt and walked them out of that empire. And that at a moment in time, they were trapped with the the armies of Egypt on one side fast approaching and the sea on the other with nothing but a pillar of fire between them. And God opened a highway across the sea and they walked on dry land. And that at following them, the opposing army was swallowed up in the flood, that God had rescued them. And that God had fed them through the wilderness and that their clothes had not worn out and that he had sustained them those 40 years of wandering. That he gave them water from a rock and he gave them food from the sky that dropped down each morning. And that when they finally came in to possess the land that God was going to give it to them. That they would take ownership of the land from people stronger than they were with standing armies and fortified cities. 
that God would give this to them and they would move into homes already built and fields already planted and they would enjoy the wealth and prosperity of the land and something would happen. And I think it's this great danger that we face. It's the danger of comfort. That we're well fed and we know where tomorrow's meal is coming from and the next. And we go to bed in our comfortable houses and we forget that all of this came from God. He says, when you do that, When you forget that everything good you have is from His hand of blessing towards you, you're going to do something that's dangerous. You're going to forget Him. And when you forget Him, something happens. When you forget God, you begin to chase after other things. When you think, I've done this. I've built this for myself with my own hands. I didn't need Him. You'll start seeking other gods. Because it's a natural expression of the human heart to worship something when it stops being God it will be some created thing and it will lead to your downfall and destruction. When you forget, you stop being faithful. And so David says, remember the testimonies of God and take charge of them that the people might hear them. The role of the king in this capacity, the role of the one who wants to leave a legacy in any capacity is telling the story of God inspiring people because of what God has done in the past that they might be faithful to his commands and directives today. So he wants to leave a legacy of faithfulness, obedience to his command, a remembrance of his deeds. In addition to a legacy of faithfulness, David wants to leave Solomon a legacy of faith, something that looks forward and focuses on the promise that God had given him. So he starts in a general statement about God's blessing to his people and moves to a specific statement about God's promises to the family of David. You'll see that in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. Again, he's going to tell him, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and his commandments and rules and his testimonies. And as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And that the Lord may establish the word he spoke concerning me. So here's what's happening. He says, if you're going to be faithful to the Lord, there's an overarching promise to all the people of God that he'll be good to you. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, Moses lays out the blessings for following God and the curses for rejecting him. And he uses an interesting uh, phrase to describe God's intention to bless his children. He says, if you'll be faithful to seek me, you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the countryside. And he says, blessing will overtake you. And the word image is that blessing will tackle you, drag you to the ground, and force you to be blessed. So that's the way God treats his children. They walk faithfully with him. And that's a promise to God's people in a general sense. But there's also a specific promise that God gave to David. That if his sons would be faithful and seek the Lord with their whole heart, that there would be a continuous succession of of his sons reigning as king in Israel. Now, we know the story because it's been written. And the sons of David didn't do this. But a son did arise from the line of David who would seek God with his whole heart, who has received the throne forever, and his name is Jesus. And the promise continues, and it's faithful, and we're blessed because of it. And what David does here in this legacy is he points his son towards the promise of God. That God is faithful to his covenant, and he blesses those who seek him. Now, some of us, we begin to kind of feel uncomfortable with this conversation about God blessing those who seek him and going to the Lord for blessing. Because there's this weird kind of thing that gets packaged as Christianity that is something else altogether. That tells people that if you say the right words at the right time, and if you put your quarter in the slot machine and you pull the lever, 
God gives you what you want every time. So if you're not healthy and wealthy, there's something wrong with you because you're not pulling the lever right. But here's the problem with that. Right? If you run a survey of the faithful men and women in the scriptures, you'll find that they, they, they all died. So there's no guaranteed lifelong health. And, and very few of them had financial means. It doesn't mean that being rich is either good or evil. It just is. And there's no promises. God gives blessings to some people that they might be a blessing. And sometimes people who don't honor the Lord have money. And sometimes people who do honor the Lord don't. Jesus said that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So there's no promise that we're going to roll in big cars and never be sick. That's not Christianity. But there is a promise that God blesses those who seek him. In fact, in Hebrews 11.6, the scriptures are clear that we don't even please God unless we come to him looking for him to bless us. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 with me. It says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I want you to see this. You cannot please God. God will not be happy with you if you do not come to him expecting that he blesses those who seek him. It's a requirement to please him. But this is where things get different for us. We don't come to God looking for a blessing. We come to God looking for God. See, it's not that God leads with stuff and doesn't want to know us. I think that perspective where God just exists to give us things views God as some absentee father who's wealthy but doesn't care about his children. So he doesn't really care to know them. He doesn't go to their ball games, but he'll give them the credit card and send them to the mall. And they can buy stuff, but their, their, their father is withheld from them. When you describe that relationship, no one wants that. I've done youth ministry in an area where that, that happened, where we, we knew kids that had that life, and they weren't happy. No one wants a father who gives them things and withholds his heart. And when God says He's good to those who seek Him, yes, He's going to take care of us, He's going to provide for us, He's a good and loving Father, but the blessing itself is Him. That we get to know Him and know our Father, that He doesn't withhold Himself for us. That revelation is why in Psalm 73, when Asaph writes this psalm, he's wrestling with something. He's wrestling with the struggles of the righteous and the obvious ease of those who don't seem to seek the Lord. And he doesn't get this. And, and as he struggles with that, God allows him to have insight into what's really going on. And I want you to see at the conclusion of that what he says in verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In the NIV, the old version that I memorized this text in, it says, the nearness of God is my good. The blessing we get beyond God caring for us, giving us what we need to live and have life and to serve Him, is the blessing of knowing Him. That's ultimately the promise that we lean on, that He's with us. 
that he'll never leave or forsake us. And, and so when we put this together, we see that the command of God communicates what he expects of his children and the reminder of his goodness to us and the reminder of his promise is what motivates us to walk not in, in a white-knuckled kind of frustrated obedience because we have to, but rather to walk joyfully walking with him because our Father has been good to us, he is good to us, and he, he will be good to us. That's the legacy that David wants to leave with his son. A legacy of faithfulness and a legacy of faith. And this is ultimately where the Christian faith takes a drastic turn from every other religious system. Every other religious system in the world is about a transaction. It's about religious goods and services being done on the part of the person in some way to appease some God or spirit. And and, and it's all transactional. If I do this, he does that. If I do this, he does that. The unique thing in Christianity is that it moves beyond transactions into a relationship. That our worship isn't an expression of duty in some hopes of of getting God off of our back. That's not a relationship with the Father. That's more like buying protection from the mob. And what we've been offered from God is knowing our Heavenly Father. And He's loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die in our place and for our sin. That by His death and resurrection, we might be made adopted children. And this is drastically different from every other religious system in the world. We're not talking about a transaction. We're talking about adoption. And that's what God has made available to us. Now, you and I don't have the promise that God made to David. We don't have a guarantee that our sons will reign on a throne in Israel. But God has not left us without hope or without promises. In Ephesians chapter 1, the promise of God is made clear to us in verse 11. It says in him, speaking of Jesus, we have obtained obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of His glory. So here's the promise. We have this inheritance with our Father of a life of eternal joy with Him. And that inheritance is followed up with the gift of His Spirit that has enabled us, that strengthens us, that counsels us, that ensures that we're never alone and that God is with us, and who seals us, who maintains the security of the inheritance that God has offered to us. And that gift is ours, and it's ours for the taking. Now, the question for us is, having received that, will we follow the example of David? And will we communicate this promise and pour it out into the lives of others so that the next generation would know? A couple practical insights. If you say, I want to be the kind of person whose life speaks to the reality that God is good and we should trust Him. Uh, Just a few things I want you to do. One is to know this doesn't begin on your deathbed. You can't live just a ridiculous life and then, you know, in the last 30 minutes say, hey, hey, kids, gather around. I want to tell you, you really need to follow Jesus. That's not going to make any sense. This is an intentional thing that's built as an accumulation of your life. Think about it even now. While you're discipling people, what do you want them to walk away from their experience and their time with you? What do you want them to take away from that? Make that a priority with your children. Do you want faith and them walking faithfully with the Lord to be the most important thing? Do you want their batting average to mean more? That's a question you're going to have to ask and wrestle with. 
and make decisions that are consistent with what you say you value. So start soon and be intentional. And the last thing I would tell you is don't focus solely on the commands and the law. Remind them of God's goodness. Every one of us has a story of God's salvation. We can all always point to the cross and remember that Jesus died for us. But beyond that, you have a specific and personal story of God's redemption, God's restoration, and God's healing. And you should share that story at the appropriate time in the appropriate way with people so that they know how God has blessed you. So that your children and those you disciple will have a story that they can pin things to. That they can hold on to of what God has done. In addition to that, don't forget the promise either. That our God is good today and He'll be good tomorrow. And we need to leave a legacy of faith as much as we do one of faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of infinite grace and mercy to us. That you've sent your only son to die in our place and for our sin. And that through the faithful witness and testimony and legacy of countless men and women, we have come to the place of hearing it today. Many of us having believed, Father, I pray that today would be a day that changes things for generations to come. That for those who who have not trusted you, that today would be the day of salvation where they would trust that your son died in their place and for their sin and rose again. And at that moment that they would be adopted into the family with a new inheritance and a new legacy to leave. Father, I pray for those of us who came into this place, believers, that we would leave with a renewed effort to walk in such a way that our lives point to you, that our speech and our actions communicate clearly to those we disciple, to our children and grandchildren even, the need to walk faithfully with the Lord and to walk in faith to his promises. Lord, we pray that your son Jesus would be lifted up as we trust you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.